welcome to the first in a new series of DJ History Podcasts. Each month, we will be talking to a different person involved in the dance music industry from DJs, record producers, label owners, industry veterans, and new bloods with a smattering of legends thrown in for good measure. Um, our first guest is, after the baguette, croque monsieur and Auguste Escoffier, one of France's greatest exports. He's been both a remixer and a DJ for well over 30 years now, going right back to a period when France had almost no DJ culture at all. Inspired by fellow countryman Francois Kevorkian, he started to remix tracks in the 1980s, then went on to release the acclaimed debut album Sacre Bleu in 1996, as well as a series of compilations thematically set in the Playboy Mansion. Subsequent to that, he's become one of dance music's greatest exponents of the art of the disco remix, reworking songs by the likes of Chic, Bohannon and Ashford and Simpson. He is, of course, Dimitri from Paris. What are you most proud of in your career? Haha, it's a it's a big question. When when I set up to well, I didn't even set up. I was some point when I was a teenager, I was buying all those records. I was a teenager in the late 70s, early 80s. And um, I was starting to buy 12 inches because I liked the, the fact that they were giving you more music. You know, you'd hear something on the radio, it'd be like two, three minutes. And then you realize like there's another version of it that's like six, seven minutes long. And sometimes I realized that not only they were longer, but the arrangement was different, the intros were different, and it was what they would call a remix. And I was looking at who was doing those those remixes. And uh, I was particularly fond of this label, Prelude, which is a cult New York label, kind of disco and boogie label. And uh, And pretty much every time there was something I liked, it was remixed by Francois Kevorkian. And... Um, uh, well, that name had a particular sound because it sounded French and it was on a New York label and I thought the remixes were really exciting. They were kind of more groundbreaking than other other remixes that I could hear at the time. Very dubby with like kind of crazy parts and intros and breaks and stuff. And I was like, oh, wow, this is this is what I really want to do. I want to be like this guy. I want to be like this guy. He's French. He's in New York. He's doing it. I want to be like him. I want to do this. I want to be a remixer. And I didn't even think of being a DJ, you know. I mean, I had no idea that Francois was also a DJ and like other remixers like Larry Levan or Tony Humphreys that were seeing their names on records. I had no idea they were DJs. It was, you know, early 90s. There was no internet. There was hardly any music press. And if there was music press, they, they totally were oblivious to this kind of music. So... I had absolutely no information. The only thing was names, and I was like, I want to be like them. And I guess later down the line, I, I did my first remix, and and I started being quite prominent as a remixer, starting, I think, my first remix I did in 86. It was a proper studio remix. Again, to put things into perspective, I mean, up to 2000, you needed to go to... A proper studio then you needed to book and work off tape 
to do remixes on a big board with a with a sound engineer with maybe extra musicians if you wanted to change things so it wasn't like fire up your laptop and off you go so you needed people to invest to believe in you because you know it was costing a lot of money i mean to make a remix if you put it all together probably was like minimum 10,000 to 20,000 you know euros or pounds or whatever to to just get a different version because of all the personnel and the places you need to rent so you know, I was quite proud that eventually I convinced people to pay that money, not to me, but just to get everyone into into the the whole game. And uh, and I eventually met Francois Kevorkian and we became friends. And I guess for me, when I was dreaming of becoming a remixer, I was like, I don't really expect the public or the audience to just understand me. But if I can get some validations from the people that I liked then I'd be happy and I get my validation from Francois. I ended up meeting Tom Moulton, who was the father of all remixers. And and we also became good friends. I mean, literally good friends, not in the Facebook sense of being a friend. And, you know, we chat over the phone regularly. And I was talking to Francois last night. And not to drop names, but those were the people I was looking up to. And I was admiring and still admire their work. And they were my mentors because I was just learning from listening to their work. And then eventually I talked to them and I learned even more from what they told me and, you know, how they were doing certain things and so on. So that's probably the thing I'm the most proud of. So how, when you're doing a remix, how, how do you approach it? Can you, I mean, I know that you're quite keen on using original stems. And so how, how, how do you plan a remix or how do you start it? Do you, do you, do you have a kind of a plot of, of well, how you execute it? That's, that's the thing about, about remixes is that I started doing remixes when the only option you had is get the tape rolling, pull up every, every track of the tape on a board, meaning each fader would be one of the recorded tracks. So usually you'd have 24 tracks, so you'd have those 20 faders up and you would listen to what they recorded initially. And when I started, I wasn't just wasn't allowed to add anything, change anything to what was recorded. So I had to play with what I had. So basically I learned this way. I learned to listen to all the 24 tracks together and then starting taking a few of those tracks down, maybe, uh, boiling it down to the rhythm section, which would be the drums, the percussion, if there was any, sometimes there wasn't any percussion, the drums, the bass line, the rhythmical parts. See, okay, what kind of groove can I get out of there? And, and you know, a song here on the radio has an intro, has a verse, has a chorus, has a bridge maybe, then goes back to the verse, to the chorus, and then there's, a, there's an ad lib. And you would look in at the part that was grooving, which is the part that grooves. And most of the times it would be at the end of the song. So you'd go to the end of the song, you're like, all right, everybody's playing together. There's a nice groove going on. Okay, then maybe I'm going to focus on that 30 to 40 second part at the very end that is usually faded out when you hear it on the radio, but I'm going to make this the main feature. So you're looking inside the multi-track with all the different parts that have been recorded. Where does it groove the most? And from then you started building like, you know, your idea of the remix. So obviously today things are different you get digital files but you still get like i mean you still get i insist on getting a proper uh digital copy of the original multi-track if there isn't any or if the tracks have been bounced down to say all the drums mixed together i'm like it just happened to me like last week i'm like there's not much i can do with this you know i mean yeah but you'll change the drums i don't want to change the drums you know they're 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 
that's what I'm interested in. I want to use the drums as they were recorded, but just pimp them up a bit. So my plan is to listen to what's there and and figuring out the the um, the, the individual tracks, which tracks are kind of like unheard in the original. Uh, is there something that I can put the spotlight on that was kind of buried in the mix? Like usually you get beautiful string parts that you can listen to them on your own and it's like classical music with no drums, no nothing. You listen to that and you're like, wow, this is beautiful. This can totally be on its own. So you're making notes of what's interesting on its own. Maybe sometimes you'll get an extra track of vocals that wasn't used or there's a little bit of uh, like this extra track of synth parts that weren't used or they were so buried down the mix that no one has heard. When I did, when I said to do the remix of the Jackson 5, um, I Want You Back, which, which is a song everybody knows, uh, I had never noticed there was a string part in there. There's a string section that, that plays something that's really beautiful. And I used that to make the intro and everybody's, oh, did you do those strings? No, they, they were there all along. And if you go back to listen to the thing, yeah, they're here, they're just, you know, Michael Jackson is so incredible that you only focus on the main mm -hmm. spotlight and then on the back, oh yeah, they were there, but kind of like, you know, in the background. So you're trying to figure out things that you can present as being new because they were not a main feature in the original. And then you move off, you know, obviously I'm doing things for, for, for DJs and for me to play out in clubs. So I'm looking also for like, you know, the rhythm parts that I want. And eventually, you know, I'll add very tiny little subtle uh, elements like a, a cowbell here or, or, or a tambourine there, you know, things that I don't want people to really notice I'm, I'm adding. I, I don't want them to to get a remix of mine that sounds like, you know, I've added too much. I, I was heavy-handed on adding things. So that, that would be my first approach uh, if I'm using the, the original stems. I still happen to sometimes change everything, but that would be for more modern songs that were recorded, like, you know, contemporary songs or whatever then it's all electronic to start with. So I'll either focus on the vocal like everyone else does and, and change the whole backing track. Or if I really like the production, you know, I'll just, whatever I like and I think is, is good for the direction I, I want to go, uh, the direction I want to follow, I'll just, I'll keep. Okay. Um, what was your first contact with DJ culture in France when you were younger? Uh, there was no DJ culture in France when I was younger. I mean, the the DJing in France when when I was, say, a teenager was first of all being a part of the club staff, like the bartender or or or, or the person checking in your coats and stuff. So you were just um, you know part of the of the team, and there was no such thing as being creative as a DJ. So it wasn't looked at something that people wanted to do. Um, that was the first thing. Then most of the DJs would have this thing with the microphone where they were just like trying to, you know, they weren't trying, they were just speaking between records. I mean, I hear in England they were doing that in the early days as well. So it was very much like radio. You know, the DJ was very much like a radio DJ. Uh, there was no beat matching whatsoever. They would play a record, play the next one and talk in between. Or even if they wouldn't talk in between, there would be no seamless transitions between the records. So it wasn't something that I was particularly drawn to because I liked the idea of interacting with music. And I felt that DJing, the DJs weren't really interacting. They were just 
putting a foot down by talking over the music, but that wasn't the kind of, it wasn't a musical interaction. So I wasn't very interested in that. And I think I got into the whole idea of remixing, oh, sorry. I got into the whole idea of DJing through the mix shows, the mostly the New York radio mix shows that uh, some friends would have on tapes, on cassette tapes that they were circulating. Like I remember Shep Pettibone mix shows from Kiss FM, Tony Humphrey's mix shows, where they were blending records, which was totally new to me, and they were blending them in a clever and musical way. So that was, oh, all right, this is something that appeals to me because it's kind of close to the whole remixing idea where you take two records and you make a third one out of them. And uh, there was that, and there was also this first um, kind of hip-hop show uh, I, I uh, got to see, which was basically they were bringing in uh, all the elements of the early hip-hop scene, which were graffiti, uh, DJs and MCs, they would bring a crew and breakdancers, they would bring a crew of these four teams on stage and the DJ would be playing, the MCs would be rapping, the dancers would be dancing and the graffiti artists would be painting in the background. So I saw that and I was like, wow, this, this was before uh, Malcolm McLaren's Buffalo Gals because I know it's kind of a changing milestone in the history of hip-hop and, and people getting... Um, sort of um, getting an idea of what it was. So I saw that and what I guess um, struck me the most was that uh, there was a DJ there and he was doing weird things with the records. I mean, he was scratching the records and he was beat juggling. He was like extending things. I wasn't quite sure what he was doing, but I could hear the scratching thing and I could vaguely see like his hand moving over the turntable. And I was like, wow, this is insane. This is like totally, I mean, I, I, I kind of like see this as something, some somebody doing something totally extraordinary with a household item. Because back then, the only mean we had to listen to music was a record player, a turntable. There was no other, it was the cassette players and turntables, that's all. So it's in the house, everybody has one you forget about it, it's just there and it's meant to be playing music. That's all it's meant to to do. And it's like somebody's taking a Hoover, is doing art with it, you know? There's this, this notion like, oh, you can actually use that thing nobody cares about and you can make something totally new with it. And I was like, totally like, it was an illumination, a moment of grace type of thing, like an illumination type of thing. And I remember going back home and, and putting a record on the, my parents' phone table and going, <laughs> kind of attempting to do what I've seen, like scratching the record. And I said, all right, this is what they were doing. Obviously, not as bad as I was trying, but yeah, this, is, this, this was it. And that was the moment I thought, okay, I can play with records. I can start remixing or reworking the records that I'm buying in a different way. I can be creative with records. And so the scratching thing, the mixing thing, along with the cassette deck that I had and everyone else had, you could pause button, meaning you, you could start recording a piece of a record and pause it, pause the recording, go to another part of the record, unpause it, and it would do a almost seamless edit between the first part you recorded and the second part. So that was 
the the beginning of me doing edits basically i like the part from the instrumental version to start the record with and then i wanted the vocal to come in because that's how i was wanting to hear the record you know so i had all these ideas and i could just put them to work with with uh rudimentary uh scratching and and editing and then i got a second turntable and a mixer and started doing sort of like mashups or mixtapes or whatever so that that was my approach of DJing, but no one was into that. Out of all my friends, they, they thought I was some kind of weirdo doing this. And uh, it only started becoming a thing, I guess, in the early 80s when I started bumping into other people in record stores uh, doing this. Oh, you're doing this too? Oh, you're scratching records? Oh, all right, I'm doing this too. Like, uh, let's get together. Let's hang out, you know? Because, I mean, I started meeting this one guy who turned out to be uh, the first French DMC champion, uh, DJ D-Nasty. And he's considered now as the pioneer of French hip-hop. He literally was the first person who scratched in France, who won competitions, who did hip-hop. And, um, and he's the only one I met. <laughs> so the only person I later found out about was Laurent Garnier, but Laurent was living in Manchester. So he got the culture from, from, from England. So up to, I guess, the 90s, it was very difficult to find people mm. that were doing things like you because probably there were, but, you know, it was difficult to connect with them because they were in other cities, other parts of France. And, and in Paris, he's the only one, uh, Dynasty is the only one I ever met. And there was another guy doing radio shows, which I got to meet and also taught me a lot, who was a, a, a guy named RLP, Robert Levy Provencal. And he was a radio DJ doing mix shows. And he came from Montreal, so he got his culture from Montreal. So the French DJ culture was non-existent to be. Right. I mean, as we know it today, it was non-existent. And from the older school guys, the ones that were, you know, talking on the mic and so on, no one ever surfaced after. So we have no historical old school DJ to, that we know of to speak about. And uh, out of the new school DJs, I mean, myself, Laurent, uh, RLP, and probably Eric Rugg. I think that's the only four that sort of like crossed over to making records later on and having a career as touring DJs. There are probably other ones that didn't cross over to that mm -hmm. point. You know, I'm not saying I'm the only one, but what I'm saying is that at the, the ones that crossed over later, there's, there's literally a handful. Right. When was the first house record that you ever heard? Um, the first house record without me knowing it was house was J.M. Silk, Shadows of Your Love. Uh, I remember this record because it sounded like D-Train and I was a huge fan of D-Train. And um, I knew it was from Chicago. Uh, it was mixed by Bruce Forrest, which I was already buying some records that he, he was mixing. But I had no idea it was house, and the, the 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 idea of house came to me when I did this second trip to New York with my friend Dynasty, the, the the other DJ, and this guy RLP. It was just the three of us, the three Musketeers, and um, we went to New York at this thing called the New Music Seminar, yeah. which uh, some people know as it was the sort of like the older version of what is known now as the Winter Music uh, Conference, yeah. but it was happening in New York, and it was a conference geared towards 
new music and mostly dance music, electronic music. It was uh, created by the the original founder of Tommy Boy Records, Tom Silverman, who had already a big name because Planet Rock had been out. And basically it would gather uh, DJs from mostly the US because it was quite difficult to get people coming from Europe. But I had heard of this and our friend RLP, who was between Montreal and Paris, you know, knew about it. He said, you guys should really come over. And it was amazing because you'd get this pass which was fairly expensive for that time. I mean, we were broke. So Dean Asti and I were staying at the YMCA in bunk beds, like in a, the tiniest room I've ever stayed at. And all our money was going to getting this pass. And the pass would allow you to get in at conferences. And uh, there were also DJ contests. We saw Cash Money DJing live. We saw Dave DMX. We saw all those guys that we were buying records off uh, to 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 be uh, competing uh, with each other at contests. Um, there were panels with Chef Pettibone, with Arthur Baker. I mean, all the heroes of our time were there. And and at night, they had events. They had events all over the city. And with your pass, you could enter for free in all the um, in all the New York clubs. So we went to see D-Light at the Limelight. We went to see Trouble Funk Live. And there was a DJ International event which was a label we had never heard of, which now is quite famous for, for being one of the first house music labels. It was at Better Days. Bruce Forrest was there. And um, and that's when we heard house music. It was just like stuff that we'd never heard before. I remember hearing for the first time um, uh, Daryl Pandy's... Um, uh, damn it, I forgot the name. Love Can't Turn Around. Yes, Love Can Turn Around <coughs> and things like that. And it was mind-blowing. And shortly after that, the British press started to talk about it. I remember at the time there was this record store that was mostly carrying new wave and pop British imports. So I was going there because there were a lot of dance mix that I liked from the, from the electronic bands of the time. And occasionally you could get the enemy or the record mirror. So I was buying record mirror because there was this uh, James Hamilton Cullen uh, who was focusing on, on club records. Yeah, so the record mirror and enemy were starting to make house music like this thing. And, um, and I knew it was something that was going to blow up. But that was sort of 86, 87. And then all those records came out of... Uh, FFRR, like Jack Your Body and all those big ones. I remember the compilations, the house sound of Chicago that I was buying. And uh, it only became a thing in France after S-Express, after Bomb the Bass. When those things hit big time in the charts, then it came to France. But it was sort of like almost old news to me. This is this the DJ, is the DJ History, Podcast History Podcast with, with Bill Brewster. Bill Brewster. Bill Brewster. What what was you, you presented a, a show in France, a radio show for quite a long time, didn't you? Can you tell me a little bit about how that happened and um, what you were doing? Well, the thing with radio was that it it stemmed from my visit at the New Music Seminar because I remember going to one of those panels and um, and I think Robert Clevillis from not yet CNC Music Factory was was answering question from the audience and uh, some guy in the audience was asking him okay I want to be a remixer like you how do I get there and I was oh he's asking the question I wasn't I was too shy to ask so um, and the guy goes on well you know 
<clears throat> try to do remixes at home, whatever whatever equipment you can find, whether two turntables, whether it's a netted, whether it's a cassette deck, and send those over to radio stations. Try to get as much exposure as you can. Maybe get your own show. And once you get the, the exposure, your work is out there. And maybe someone is going to notice it and you can, you know, you can get a gig. So I was like, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> Literally, I started sending my edits to radio stations, to the places that I thought would be interested. And I got some feedback. I even sent my edits to James Hamilton. And he he, he mentioned me. <laughs> I still have the clip. So at, at the time, I was just going by the name Dimitri, which is my, my first name. And um, so it was, it was very encouraging because I was getting feedback. And uh, so I was, pushing, I was pushing the radio thing as well, thinking to myself, if I have my own radio show, that's the best way to play my own music. I mean, you know, that's what they do. They buy, they buy newspapers so that they push on their own idea of the news. So basically I was doing that move. And, um, and I was sending demos left and right. And eventually, uh, I got the attention of one radio station that started playing my edits. Uh, Robert RLP was playing my edits in his show. So I got a bit of exposure. So I applied for another show and they had heard my edits in the other radio, which like gave me, gave me a foot in. And, um, and I started having my show like that. And uh, from a small radio, I got onto a bigger one to eventually getting onto the biggest radio show, uh, the, the biggest radio station in France, uh, which still exists, which is called NRJ. Uh, and, um, and before they, they wanted to hire me and they said, well, I'm happy to go work with you, but you need to give me a show. That was the condition. And they were like, okay. So they gave me the show. And the interesting thing with NRJ was that it was an FM radio and, but technically FM radios, they can only broadcast a small range. So it was, you could only listen to it in Paris, but those guys had big expansion plans and they wanted to be to be there in the rest of the country. So what they were doing, they were buying smaller radio stations in, in smaller towns and and they were they were piping the same program from Paris to a lot of smaller stations all over the country. So eventually they had about 25, 30 different uh, frequencies scattered all over the country. And the music that was played at NRJ, you could listen to pretty much everywhere in the countryside. And they were the only ones. Because they had the means, they, they they were number one, so they could you know they could charge a lot for advertisement, and their advertisement was all over the country. So mm -hmm. the business model was such that they could be listened to anywhere in the country. Whereas the cooler stations, the ones that were playing better music, you could only listen to them in a few small places. Sometimes only in an area of town or only in Paris. So we had things like Radio Nova, which was an amazing programming, super groundbreaking, edgy. I mean, that was the ra the radio station I wanted to listen to. Whereas NRJ was like top 40 music. It was just whatever the trend was. It was not for me. But they had given me this show and the show was on Saturday nights. And on Saturday nights, they were not subject to surveys. Uh, audience surveys so basically I could do whatever I wanted because they just didn't care they didn't bother with weekends so I could play exactly the music that I wanted so I was playing house I was playing funk I was playing disco I was playing whatever I wanted I had no playlist and I was the only show 
that didn't have to follow the playlist because they just didn't care. That's it. There was no other reason. And the moment like the service started to be on Saturdays first, they moved me to Sundays. And eventually the this, this, this service were like seven days a week. So they just kicked me out. But I managed to keep the show for like 10 years. And it became some kind of a cult show because of what I was saying earlier. Because in the countryside, there was nothing else in terms of dance music and sort of like non-top 40 music. You know, probably some cities had their own small station, like broadcasting interesting stuff. But uh, they were stuck with a couple of radio stations uh, outside of Paris, whereas in Paris we had like uh, 25 to choose from and, and a few of them were, you know, you could find what you wanted. But uh, outside of Paris, it was very difficult to, to get music that wasn't top 40. So it ended up being a cult and uh, I only knew of it of this like maybe 20 years later when internet came up and people were uh, putting online my mixes from 20 years before which I'd never kept any so I started listening to mixes I was doing like 20 years ago and it was quite fun and uh, and I met people who were, were big record collectors now so yeah I mean I was living in this small town and all we had was your show and it was amazing and I learned about so many records and I'm making lists of what I heard and sometimes it took me 20 years to find out the record you played because you didn't say it right when you announced it and so on so I get lots of stories coming into me literally 15 to 25 years after and uh, it, it made me quite proud because you know when you're on your own in a in a small radio station studio playing your music it's night you're on your by yourself you don't get any feedback you don't know where it's going you're feeling like it's going nowhere literally uh even more so because the rest of the radio station is playing music that you don't like so it was kind of weird i was doing this and after a while i was like you know what it's not going anywhere and eventually they kicked me out too so uh for for years i mean i thought this didn't lead to anything <clears throat> And interestingly, 20 years later, I got like the recognition for it, which was yeah, quite nice. How, I, I mean, you've been DJing a long time. How has your, how has DJing changed for you over the past 30 years or so? Because obviously in the beginning, it was pretty much just two decks and, and a bag of vinyl. How, how, what has happened over the years that's changed your kind of approach to DJing? Well, the, the biggest change is how... England changed the position of the DJ because before England, the DJ was in the dark corner of the club. Okay, there's a technical change, but I'm talking more like as a conceptual change. Yeah. Uh, he was in the dark corner of the club. He was part of the of the. He was a resident. He was playing the first record, playing the last record, playing for six hours, eight hours, twelve hours sometimes. For as long as the club would be open, the DJ would be this DJ. And there might be two DJs like doing shifts over the week, but one DJ for one night, that was the norm. And the main point was the music, not the actual person playing the music. So no one would bother looking at the DJ. Um, hardly anyone would, would ask him anything. They, they couldn't even know where he, where he was because he was always like in a recessed area. And that was what sort of like... <clears throat> pleased me i wanted to be a remixer but when i learned that the guys that were my idols people like francois shep tony humphreys larry levan were djs i'm like okay this is interesting because they get to play what they want and there was the beginning of the summer of love thing in, in the uk and djs were starting to take the center of attention but what i was getting from this was that 
they were bringing the records to the club. Whereas before, the records would be in the club and the DJ would go to the club and use the records that were there. And in France, it was very much like that. I mean, I had a few a few experiences as a DJ in a club. I wasn't allowed to bring my own. It's like, this is a music library, which in France is called discotheque. Discotheque is literally a record library, uh, if you translate it. And uh, you had to use the record from the records from their library. And it wasn't very interesting because if I didn't like those records, I couldn't do much with it. So... Early on, I wasn't very much interested in the original concept of DJing. And when those things shifted to the DJ being a creative person, bringing a music, bringing a vibe to an already existing place, it looked, it looked to me that it was much more interesting. And the first shift was that. And that really came with the idea of promoters bringing their own crew and their own DJs. And that was very much a British thing. Um, in the US, they still had the resident DJ model. Mm -hmm. Of course, technically, they were much more advanced. They were beat matching records. Sometimes they were using, like, you know, they were adding keyboards or whatever. But it was still this resident thing. And England turned into a more guest thing where the DJ would be the guest. And he would bring a certain type of music and other DJs would play. And there would be several DJs over one night. And every DJ would bring his own style and so on. So that, that became the new norm. And the second big shift, which is the one I wasn't too happy with, that the DJ started to be put on the stage with the lights on him. And it was still two turntables, a mixer, but you were in the very front of the stage with people looking at you. And I was like, I have nothing to show. I'm only playing music. Why people want to look at me? And I remember this thing I was playing in Lisbon and... I went to see the club in the afternoon, do the sound check, and it looked nice. It had this, this DJ booth really high up in, in, in the darkest side of the room. And when I came back to play, oh, we did something for you that you're really going to like. I said, what is it? We put the DJ booth in the center of the stage, and I was going to kill the guy. Why did you do such a thing? doesn't mean anything. I was really angry. And that was really a moment for me where I, think, where I thought, okay, things have changed. And it was at a time of my career that I would either accept it or just leave because it was it wasn't gonna change, and and since that moment, I mean, I had to accept myself that I was gonna be in front of a stage with just my two turntables and my mixer, and and people would look at me, and I was it was very uncomfortable. Still, still today, I found it kind of you know, like this is not my place, you know. But that's how it is. People want to see you. People want to I don't know I don't know. People want to take pictures of you. And whereas I'm like, why don't you just focus on the music? So that's that's probably the biggest change. And from a technical standpoint, probably the biggest change for me is that I remember when I was DJing with my boxes of records and stuff, I was like, oh, if only I could have my whole music library with me every time I'd go somewhere because I'd, uh, I had prepared this crate, but then... You know, there's this record I absolutely wanted to play that would have been a perfect fit, but I didn't bring it with me. Or like I, bring, I brought too many records that are not right for this, this set of people or so on. So I always thought to myself, you know, it would be a dream if one day I could have my whole library mm. and play to the people. And that dream came through with, you know, with digital files. Literally, you can bring an unlimited amount of music with you. You know, it can, it can fit in in a pen drive. So uh, that happened and it did change my life. 
addition in my life because uh, it changed the way of DJing for good and worse possibly because you know when you had to limit yourself to a certain amount of tracks that you could play well you know you would you were thinking of things differently when you have a limited choice then you know it's a limited choice so sometimes it's uh, it can stop you in your tracks okay what am i gonna play i have this unlimited choice in front of me but you know if if i uh take the pluses and the the minuses of the thing i would probably not go back yeah also carrying you know carrying records was pretty uh heavy on your back and so on and I used to live in the fourth floor of a building without without a lift, so I remember coming back from the gigs with like two bags of like 20 kilos each and having to go uh, up the stairs, you know, so I don't have too good memories of that. So, you know, being a bit lighter now is, um, is, is a plus. Have you ever seen a DJ playing who has changed the way that you thought about DJing or changed your approach to it? Yes, I would probably quote Francois K on this, who has been groundbreaking in terms of remixes and, and is groundbreaking today in terms of DJing because he's been DJing with stems. Basically, he there are new software that you can get today that sort of separate. You, you have this track that's a mixed track. It, you, don't, you don't have access to the parts. But you, you enter it in the software and the software will, will break it down into four or five tracks. So you get like separate drums, separate bass, separate vocals and everything else. It doesn't sound perfect yet, but it's really, it's, it's quite impressive. And then you can have those things run in sync in, in a software and you can, you know, you can start muting things and doing remixes live. And, um, and when I saw Francois do that, I was really impressed i was like wow this is like this is really groundbreaking i know they tried to do that stem thing for a while mm. but you know it was only new tracks there was a lot of techno tracks that you know it wasn't bringing something really new into the picture and it didn't catch at all but like with tracks that people are familiar with if you start breaking them down and if you do that live it's very inspiring and and uh you know, it just it makes like a new connection with the people and so on. So he really taught me that. And he was also, I've been following his DJ sets from when he started going back into like in the mid 90s. And he was using a lot of effects, which is something I always liked doing myself. So that also kind of changed the way I'm, I'm looking at things. I always have this effect box with me and I'm, mm. using, I'm using it, I would say, in a more musical ways that other people are um so yeah he would probably be the one uh and um and also bruce forrest that i only saw him once at better days but i didn't know at the time but it was actually david cole from cnc music factory next to him playing keyboards and the fact that the two of them together were doing this thing adding to the music live was i never did it because i never found the right keyboard player but that really inspired me in in um, in bringing new things to just simply playing one record after the other and with the whole digital era like from 2000 onwards when you know I started DJing with CDs as opposed to records and once I had CDs I could play my own edits so I started editing pretty much everything that I was playing so 
I think 99.9 of what I'm playing is a edited version, sometimes extremely mildly, sometimes quite heavily of something. So, so it also brings something that, you know, that's personal to you. So even if I get sent a song from that's been done last week, you know, if I think it needs a little push here and there, I will just edit it and play it, play my edit of it. So the whole editing thing for me is a very personal thing. I don't put those out like a lot of people would do now. But I think it's also part of the whole, you know, uh, school of DJing that you, you, you personalize, you, you make you make the music that other people make, you you kind of bring in towards your own personal realm of things um, by, you know, twisting it a bit yeah. and giving it your own touch. So This is this the DJ, is the History, DJ podcast. History Podcast. But what does DJing teach you about making or remixing records? Does it, does it feed into what you do in the studio? Yes, absolutely. I think um, one of the things I miss the most uh, during lockdowns was that I was making music at home, but I couldn't test it out. I was remixing things, but I couldn't test it out with a crowd. And I think when you make something on your own and you play to a crowd, you know, things that you thought would go down well don't go down as well as you would have imagined. And it gives you also new ideas. Okay, this 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 break here is not right or it's too long or it's too short. Oh, I should make this part longer because it really works. So the fact that you make something in your studio and then you try it out with people, it, it gives you a complete different perspective than when you don't test it. So uh, I think it's invaluable that as a music producer, whether you remix things or you produce music of your own, uh, it's invaluable that you can test it in, in a proper uh, setting. And also I used to do a lot of radio uh, in the early uh, in the early uh, 90s and I started playing I guess towards the middle of the 90s around 95 96 and it, it took me a while to just adjust to the fact that when you're on the radio you don't really get a reaction from the listeners so you're trying to make it interesting you're trying to captivate their attention uh, but you don't know if you actually succeed uh, when you play out you're also trying to captivate their attention but you exactly see when you do it wrong or when you do it right. So that teaches you, I mean, programming is, is the number one skill for any DJ. Technical skills are a plus. But if you don't know how to program, if you don't know how to just... Reading the crowd is, is, is a term that's been thrown out a bit much. But it is essential that, you know, you feed off what the crowd is telling you. You know, you can see when they're happy. You can see when they're waiting for the next one to happen. You can see when they're really angry and they want you to just do something. So you just feed off what they're, the signs that you get off the crowd and you adjust your programming. And when you make a piece of music that you play, that's the exact same thing. During those five minutes that you play it, they'll, they'll send you signs and you interpret those signs and you just adjust it so that uh, it works for you and also works for the people. So uh, yes, every time I'm, I'm working on some piece of music, uh, the next thing I'm looking forward to is to actually to test it out. It's really important for me that I need to see mm. how does it work. Uh, did I did, was my first idea right? Do they actually like the record to start with? And if they like the record, do they go along the floor? So yeah, it's a, it's essential. What what's the one track or song that you'd most like to remix but haven't yet? change the glow of love 
without hesitation. And I don't think it's ever going to happen because, I mean, I've been searching for 30 years already and the, the, apparently the parts have been lost. And from the original producers to the labels, no one knows where they are. So, but yeah, that would be first. I mean, it's my favorite track ever. So, and that would be first on the list, but yeah. And have you ever managed to, to talk to uh, the original producers? About... I haven't. I would love to. Um, his... he, he, he's like a big composer in Italy now, yeah, isn't he? Maro Malavasi. Uh, yeah, he's in Italy and uh, I've been as close to a friend of mine talking to the bassist who's, who's a famous bass player. Uh Davide Romani, um, but um, yeah, no one knows where that tape is, and and now it's back down to the, to independent owners. So I would have imagined in Italy as well. So I would have imagined that they search also everywhere they could. So it seems like yeah, maybe it's gonna be unearthed some sometime. I mean, it's funny tapes turn up in garbage bins sometimes. So you know, you never right. Know. Yeah, yeah. If you had to pick one record or track that you've made that best represents what you think about your career which one it would it be uh, that's a tough one uh, i would probably pick an older remix of mine um stetsasonic talking all the jazz because i remember when i did this i mean i was asked to do it by by tom silverman which already was an honor. That was like mid-90s or late 90s, 98 maybe. And it's a hip-hop record who talks about sampling records. So the concept already is something that speaks to me very much. And um, and also because hip-hop was what ignited my love of interacting with music. Um and uh, I set out to do this remix in a way that I'd never done before with, with a live band. So I got, I used up all the budget that I had for this and hired a band, like a drummer, a keyboard player, bass player, like a full band. It was a six-piece band. And we got them into the studio and they, they played the backing track. Them, you know, I directed them to play. Basically, the, the, the main sample of talking of the jazz was Lonnie Liston Smith expansion so I had them redo the bass line and 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 playing the drums and so on and um, and I really enjoyed it and it really made me think that you know this is really what I want to do I want to record people live because I've always had this love for disco which it's always been orchestras playing and the fact to be able to do it 20 years after and to have it sound in a way that sounded good enough to me was like, okay, it's possible. Enough of the MPC, enough of the Atari, enough of Logic, enough of all the computer thing. And um, and I'm proud of it because not too many people were doing it at the time. I think the only guy in dance music that was doing this was uh, Marshall Jefferson with 10 City, where he would hire the Philly guys, mm. all young drummers and things like that. Um, and I was in awe of this and uh, I wanted to do the same. So... Um, I'm happy I pulled it off, and from then on, you know, every time I could do something with live musicians, I, I did it. You're listening, You're to, listening Bill to Bill Brewster, Bill Brewster with the DJ with History, the DJ Podcast. History Podcast. What last question? What are you currently working on at the moment? Uh, what I'm working on at the moment? Uh, well, I just finished doing a batch of 
edits that I had this party that I was playing last week with Red Reg, Red Greg, and um, and uh, I wanted like new stuff, so I just finished that, uh, but not stuff that I want to put out, but a lot of more obscure disco things, and um, that I've launched to be released. Uh, there's a remix of Delegation, the British band, well, where the closest thing in England to chic in terms of uh, uh, production standard and songwriting, which I'm really happy. Interestingly, this th this band was probably bigger in France than it ever was in England. They're huge they, they in were France. produced by Ken Gold. Ken Gold, they? absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. interviewed him. Oh, yeah, I got to talk with him. He's a lovely guy. I mean, we had Lives a, in Carolina or something? Yeah, he lives in America, yeah. yeah. And he got out of the music business like in the late 90s and uh, he was quite happy that his music came out and interestingly I picked up two songs from from the same album which is a huge album in France that all we all knew as kids uh, the album is called Eau de Vie that's a French name too and so uh, I remixed Heartache number nine which is the most known one yeah and another song that is called uh, One More Step to Take, which never was a single. And he was, oh, I always wanted this to be a single. I'm so glad you picked it up because I always felt this song never had the chance it deserved. So it was like really happy I picked it up. So this is coming out on my own label, Lee Edits, um, sometime this summer, whenever the pressing plant uh, deems... Uh, deems us worthy of having it type of thing. Uh, and then uh, another project I'm really happy with is Ten City. I've always been a huge fan of Marshall's stuff. And um, Ten City came back last year with a new, proper new song called Be Free. And I got to remix that. So it hasn't come out yet. So it's going to be uh, also on vinyl uh, soon. I mean, the production production is launched, but no one knows when the records will ever be manufactured, but eventually they will. And um, and next up uh, is a remix of this band that covers Chicago, and they did a really good cover of Street Player, and that's on Dave Lee's label, um, Zed Records. And um, it's the first time I'm doing something for Zed, so it's quite nice because we've always played, been playing each other's records for a long time and competing on eBay, even did a compilation <laughs> together. So, so it's quite fun that uh, I get to do something for Zed. And uh, yeah, that's uh, actually I have to start this uh, once I'm out of this studio. <laughs> right? Is that is that an old cover version or is it? No, it's from one? like it did the rounds on YouTube. Right. Um, and uh, and it's like nearly identical uh, to the original, and uh, so he he licensed it and got the stems and uh, and asked me if I wanted to do it and. For years, everybody wanted to remix Street Player, but Chicago are notoriously very tight with remixes and things. They right. didn't want anyone to touch it. So, so I guess that's the the next best uh, version for us to to mess with. Brilliant! Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you, Bill. Take care. You too. You have been listening, have been to, listening the to the DJ History, History Podcast, Podcast with Bill Brewster. With Bill Brewster. With Bill Brewster.